Hey everybody, Jeremy here. We are not yet beginning our new show format. If you don't know about the changes coming to the show and how we will be doing things a little bit differently around here, check out our most recent episode that has major announcements about the show where you can catch up on how this show is going to be changing in the weeks ahead. But right now we're kind of in this in-between phase and we're providing for you some summer content. And something that we wanted to share with you is an article that I recently wrote about critiquing covenant theology. Now, before I get into the details of the article itself, I just want to say that I am not saying that our covenantal brothers in the faith are heretics. I'm not saying that they are antichrist. I'm not saying that uh, we should reject them, anything like that. I want to make very clear up front that these brothers really are brothers and sisters, uh, those who are in solid Presbyterian or Baptist churches, or, uh, you know, you could expand that to include some other denominations as well. They are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we are very grateful for them, and there are many ways in which we can partner. However, when it comes to our overarching view of God's program for the world, where all of this is headed, the mission of the church, what we are to believe about the the future for Israel, what we are to believe about the future for the church, all of that we have differences on. And those are some pretty important and major topics. So that's why I like to discuss these things, because it affects so much of what we see in the Bible. It affects the entire storyline of the Bible, really. So um, that's what this is about. That's why I write articles like this. That's why we want to share it with you, is just to bring to light the distinctions that exist. So this is a compare and contrast, well, really just a contrast, I guess, (laughs) between dispensationalism and covenant theology. So I will now jump into that article. Critiquing Covenant Theology. I very much appreciate many covenant theologians. Several Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists have influenced my thinking, from John Calvin to Charles Spurgeon to Cornelius Van Til to Francis Schaeffer to John Frame, Alistair Begg, Wayne Grudem, and James White. I have a load of gratitude for many non-dispensational pastors, authors, and scholars. However, when it comes to the covenant theology versus dispensationalism issue, I remain convinced that the dispensational system best explains God's program as revealed in the Bible. Further, covenant theology seems to muddy the waters instead of providing clarity regarding God's purposes in the world. So it is from this perspective of thankfulness and admiration for my Reformed brothers and sisters that I offer a critique of their theological system. I've broken down this issue into nine categories, as seen by the headings below, For each of these categories, I will first articulate the covenant theology perspective before offering my critique from a dispensational viewpoint. I hope this article serves well those who are seeking to understand the differences between these systems and why it matters. Hermeneutics Covenant theology uses different hermeneutics for the Old Testament and the New Testament. After interpreting the New Testament normally, Theological conclusions from there are projected onto Old Testament prophecies to bring out hidden spiritual meanings unknown to the Old Testament's authors. This method is sometimes called New Testament priority hermeneutics or census plenior fuller meaning hermeneutics. 
Some will go as far to say that the New Testament clarifies the Old Testament, implying that the Old Testament revelation is not as perspicuous as the New Testament revelation, that the Old Testament is dark and needs the light of the New Testament. Critique. To grasp the Bible's storyline, Scripture should be read progressively, and theology should be developed following progressive revelation using one hermeneutic a grammatical, historical, and contextual approach to every passage to ascertain its meaning. Covenant theology must abandon normal interpretation of many Old Testament passages in order to comport with their system. This approach does not allow the Old Testament to mean what it says. Thus, it fundamentally alters the trajectory of God's revealed program for Israel as declared through the Old Testament prophets. So, instead of developing a supposed theology of continuity that leads to an inconsistent hermeneutic when dealing with the text of the Bible, Christians should seek hermeneutic consistency and allow God to build our theology through the plain meaning of the words he inspired. Covenant of Redemption Covenant theology claims that in eternity past, a covenant was made between the Father and the Son, many include the Spirit also, agreeing to accomplish man's salvation in the world that would be created and subsequently corrupted by sin. The Father elected a people to give to the Son, and the Son agreed to take the place of those whom the Father gave. This covenant sets the stage for the doctrine of limited atonement critique. Such a covenant is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that the Father elected a people to give to the Son, see John 10.29 and John 17.24, the persons of the Godhead would not need to make a covenant to establish an agreement. They share a perfect eternal will. Additionally, there is no higher rank or dubious partner within the Trinity that would necessitate a formal covenant, as many covenants are security in the case of an untrustworthy or unreliable party. Regardless, this is the covenant of covenant theology that I have the least problem with. Covenant of Works Covenant theology teaches that in the garden, God made a covenant with Adam, wherein it was agreed that if he maintained righteous works only, personally, perfectly, and perpetually, he would enjoy eternal life forever. Critique. Such a covenant is not described in the Bible. John Frame, a Presbyterian, believes in this covenant, though, he says, quote, there is no record of God's formally announcing it as in other covenants, end quote. That's a big deal to me. Although it is true that if Adam never sinned, he would have lived forever, this does not necessitate a covenant of works wherein eternal life is earned by man. The insertion of this covenant is critical to the entire system of covenant theology, yet it is done without biblical warrant. Covenant of Grace Covenant theology teaches that after the fall, God made a covenant with Adam and his progeny, providing salvation by grace through faith in the work of Christ. This covenant was progressively disclosed through other covenants. Some who hold to covenant theology, like Presbyterians, say that the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Old, Davidic, Priestly, and New Covenants are all just dispensations of the singular covenant of grace. However, Reformed Baptists say only the New Covenant should be equated with the Covenant of Grace. Critique 
Such a covenant is not described in the Bible. Although it is true that God showed Adam grace and made a promise of redemption in Genesis 3, he did not use covenantal language. The promise of the coming seed of the woman is truly paramount, but it is not a covenant. Additionally, the New Testament declares that God made multiple covenants with Israel, which they still possess, rather than a singular covenant of grace. See Romans 9.4 and Ephesians 2.12. An often forgotten covenant is the one made with the priestly family in Numbers 25, which does not seem to have a home within covenant theology, as it would not comport with the covenant of grace. Israel and the Church For many covenant theologians, ethnic or national Israel no longer has a role in God's program. Rather, Israel is to be understood as the people of God in all ages, regardless of their physical lineage. In this sense, it could be said, as it is by some, that Israel has existed since Adam. Covenant theology teaches that Israel continues to exist today and that true Israel is the church built by Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is no meaningful distinction between Israel and the church in covenant theology. Essentially, according to covenant theology, Israel was the church of the Old Testament, and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. Furthermore, since God will not bring national Israel back into focus as its own entity, the church is to be understood as the culmination of Old Testament prophecies about blessings for Israel. Critique Israel has always had reference to the literal, physical descendants of Jacob consisting of 12 tribes. Gentile believers are sons of Abraham by faith, Galatians 3, 6-9, but they are never called the offspring of Jacob, which is Israel, Isaiah 65-9 and Jeremiah 46-27. The church is a mysterious new work, Ephesians 3, 4-7, meaning it was not disclosed in ages past. As a new work of God, the church is distinct from national Israel and God's program, not replacing Israel or usurping the promises God made to Jacob's descendants. The church is made to participate in the new covenant, see Luke 22.20, yet she does so as the church, not as Israel. Believing Gentiles and Jews in the church come together as a new man a new international organism created by God distinct from the singular nation of Israel. In the Bible, prophets have revealed that one day God will return to dealing with national entities. See Isaiah 19, verses 19 to 25. And Israel will have a special role. Check out Zechariah 14, 16 through 21. However, at the present time, the new man is being built up in Christ, wherein there is neither Jew nor Greek. The Law In covenant theology, the law given through Moses in the Old Testament has three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. The moral aspect of the law is binding on humanity from creation to consummation, and it's summed up in the Ten Commandments. Most believe, within covenant theology, that the civil and ceremonial aspects were binding on humanity only from Moses to Jesus, but the moral aspect of the law is perpetual, so it must have a sanctifying element today. Thus, one of the uses of the law is for believers to look to it to grow in the faith. Critique God's law was not given with categories. Therefore, any labeling of laws is to some degree superficial. Apostolic instruction says that the church is not under or bound to the law, 
See Romans 6.14 and 7.6, Galatians 6.18. Instead, the church is under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. The law given through Moses has been taken out of the way as an obligation for believers, Ephesians 2.14-16. Yet because it reflects God's nature, the law is holy, just, and good. It revealed God's will for Israel and reveals mankind's total inability to meet God's holy standard. It serves as a tutor to lead men to Christ, and when one believes in Christ, he is no longer under the tutor, Galatians 3.25. Thus, believers are not sanctified through law, but by the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, 4-11, as he, the Spirit, leads us into life by a higher standard, Christlikeness. The Great Tribulation There are three main interpretations of the tribulation within covenant theology, all of which include the church suffering through the event. There's the preterist interpretation, which states that the Great Tribulation occurred and was fulfilled in the first century. There's the historical interpretation that states that the tribulation events correspond to events through history, even to today. Then there's the spiritual interpretation, which says that literal fulfillment is unimportant regarding this event, and that all elements of the Great Tribulation allegorically apply to all believers in every age. Critique. There is a Great Tribulation that will take place over the face of the earth, displaying God's wrath toward sin as described in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. It's also worth looking at Isaiah 13, 6 to 16, Daniel 9, 27, Obadiah verses 15 to 21, Matthew 24, 21, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 10. No historical event has fulfilled all of these prophecies. The church will be spared from this outpouring of God's wrath since she is not destined for it. John 14, 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3, 10. During this tribulation, Israel will specifically endure God's judgment, and all who remain will be saved. You can see that in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Zechariah 13, 1 through 9, and Revelation 7, 4 to 8. The Millennium There are three main interpretations of the millennium within covenant theology, none of which include a particular function for Israel as a national entity within the program of God. These are general overviews of the positions. Historical premillennialism. Before Christ's coming, Israel will be saved and grafted into the church. Upon his return, he will reign for a literal thousand-year period in which the church will experience the blessings for Israel promised in the Old Testament. Christ's return is imminent. Amillennialism. The thousand years described in Scripture symbolize Christ's spiritual reign that began with his resurrection and ascension. His reign is limited to the church today rather than being an explicit governance over all nations in the future. His return is imminent. Postmillennialism. The nations will be conquered for Jesus before his return. As the world converts to Christianity, the thousand years begin, whether literal or not. And at the end of the millennium, Jesus will come to inherit his kingdom. They believe Christ's return is not imminent. Critique. After the Great Tribulation, Jesus will return with his previously raptured church to establish a literal thousand-year reign on the face of the earth, 
Revelation 20, 1-6. The saints will reign with him at that time. Matthew 19, 28, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, 2 Timothy 2, 12. As revealed through the Old Testament prophets, this will be the kingdom promised to David, resulting in blessings for the world and a specific function for Israel, who will be restored in her land. 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, Isaiah 2, 1-11, Isaiah 19, 19-25, Jeremiah 23, 5-8, Jeremiah 33, 14-18, Ezekiel 37, 24-28, and Amos 9, 10-15 are interesting passages to check out. Satan's status. During the millennium of Revelation 20, Satan is described as being bound and sealed in a bottomless pit for the duration of it. For historic premillennialists, this is still a future event. Dispensationalists agree with them. However, Amillennialists and postmillennialists claim that Satan is currently bound and sealed in the bottomless pit while still being very active in the world. He is only unable to prevent the church from growing. This, of course, implies that he was able to do so before this binding. Before he was put in the bottomless pit, he was able to prevent the church of the Old Testament from growing. Critique. In Revelation 20, Satan is prevented from doing anything whatsoever as he is sealed in the abyss. Also, Satan is described as being active against the church in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, 1 Peter 5.8, including in Revelation itself, Revelation 2.10 and 13. Thus, the binding must be future. Additionally, Satan has never been able to stop the work of God as the Lord has always had a remnant. Covenant theology teaches that Israel was the church of the Old Testament, but Satan could not stop the growth of Israel or deceive the nations so as to prevent their salvation, especially when we consider people like Rahab, Ruth, and others who were not naturally born Israelites. Well, this was a very high-level overview of the major differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Be sure to check out the article on my website where you can readily access the verses uh, that I cite. They're linked to Bible Gateway where you can read those in full. But these are very important differences, and they're worth considering. So thank you for listening to this and considering along with me. May the Lord bless all of us as we seek to understand what it is that he has said to honor him by believing in his word. God bless.